0: Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. It's December 15,
1: 2020.
0: Our show today is Patterns of Segregation and Alibis for Abandonment, part two of our conversation with Walter Johnson about his book, The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States, published by Basic Books. We're listening to the main theme from the 1944 musical film Meet Me in St. Louis, which stars Judy Garland. The film was adapted from a series of eight vignettes published first as 5135 Kensington in The New Yorker, and then expanded to 12 for a book compilation, with each chapter representing a month of a year from 1903 to 1904, a year in St. Louis leading up to the opening of the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, also known as the St. Louis World's Fair. The author was St. Louis native Sally Benson, who attended the Mary Institute until she moved with her family to New York. The Mary Institute was founded as a school for white girls in 1859. It's named for the daughter of William Greenleaf Elliott, founder and chancellor of Washington University in St. Louis. It's now located in Ladue, a suburb of St. Louis that has the highest median household income of any city in Missouri with a population over 1,000. This is one footing upon which the structural racism in St. Louis is founded. Today's show takes us from the Dawes Act of 1887 up through the 1954 decision to demolish the black homes and businesses of Mill Creek Valley and replace them, almost literally, with nothing. Along this timeline we'll find novelist Theodore Dreiser, From 1892 to 1894, Dreiser was an essential ethnographer of white men seeking sport or vice, with black women in St. Louis, during his time there as a reporter for two newspapers. The 1904 World's Fair follows, revealing the scientism of the white imperial project at home and abroad, in conquest of the dark-skinned barbarians through education, put on display in an exhibit called The Human Zoo. But the barbarism of civilization is forever revealed as we discuss the racial capitalism that fomented the white violence of the East St. Louis riots of 1917. That violence finds its institutional bureaucratic counterpart in the practices of Harlan Bartholomew perhaps the most influential city planner in U.S. history. Walter Johnson is the Winthrop Professor of History and Professor of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. His recent books are River of Dark Dreams, Slavery and Empire in the Cotton Kingdom, and Soul by Soul, Life Inside the Antebellum Slave Market. We begin today's program with a brief discussion of Karl Schurz, a German émigré revolutionist who was to become the U.S. Secretary of the Interior in 1877, where he was central in devising ways to rob native populations of their land that, through the Dawes Act, turned them into liberal freeholders whose only possessions would be debt. And now, patterns of segregation and alibis of abandonment, with Walter Johnson
2: on Interchange
0: from WFHB.
2: He was a European revolutionary, but he is someone who to me suggests the way that the institution of slavery made possible a set of alliances between what you might today call, you know, liberals and leftists, mm-hmm. right? So people like Shorts and Zigo, um, Franz Ziegle, were both opposed to slavery. What they imagined would come after slavery was very, very different. And so what Schurz imagines is a capitalist economic development. And, you know, and, and he becomes, I think, in some way, a intellectual descendant of, of Thomas Hart Benton. He, he advocates more and more for um, a particular form of Indian removal and the expansion of railroad capital through the West. And in fact, it's Schurz, who is as the Secretary of the Interior, orders federal troops to St. Louis to put down the, uh, the railroad strike St. Louis Commune in 1877.
0: He's a particularly interesting character as well, only in some ways also because he, he ties the understanding of, of debt uh, forward as well. I think that you, you note uh, Jefferson writing about, um, creating indebted Indians. And then Schurz is doing something similar, right? With trying to create, uh, almost homeowners and homeowner debt. People stuck to the land by, by their, their uh, relationship to, to the finance of that land.
2: I, I think one of the themes that runs through the book, is a notion of dispossession through debt, and the way that the terms of um, imperial land ownership, um, the the way that that Native Americans are and are not allowed to hold land, um, varies over time in relationship to the United States government, but that there is an underlying emphasis on their dispossession. And Schurz is is certainly part of that. And so Schurz is is someone who is very, very intent on trying to transform Native American polities into liberal freeholding polities. And, you know, so he's a, a Proponent of the Indian schools and the notion that you know the the founder of the Indian schools um, is a man named Pratt outlines, which is that that you can kill the Indian but save the man. If we talk about this kind of twinning of civilization and barbarism, there's a perfect example where what is justified as being a civilizing process is in fact barbarous, and as it, at its root there is a large scale dispossession because. What eventually happens is that the United States allocates, it's just called the, the Dawes Act, the United States allocates Native American lands that are collectively held by polities to individuals. And so they give a certain amount of land to each um, identifiably Native American individual. That leaves a whole bunch of Native American land, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of land left over. And so much of that land is then absorbed by the United States and then doled out to various white controlled um, institutions.
0: Yeah, it's it's a really, again, one of those diabolical things, right? Where you remove the whole um, ways in which native peoples identified themselves, identified their their themselves with their their particular land and the geography they lived in, and how they related to where they lived, and just remove that from them, and leave them with really nothing
2: they destroy the notion of, of native sovereignty and transform it into land ownership. And land ownership is a very, is a very thin notion of the relationship between um, people in a place in comparison to the sorts of sovereignty that, that native nations had um, exercised and um, still hope to, I think.
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is part two of our conversation with Walter Johnson about his book, The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States. We've been discussing the twinning of civilization and barbarism, captured in the white supremacist phrase that you can kill the Indian and save the man. That pedagogy is at the liberal heart of dispossession and death. I did mention earlier that I wanted to to talk about Theodore Dreiser. Chapter six was probably I don't know if it was the most fun chapter, <laughs> but the most like fascinating chapter again for human psychology because it, it runs the gamut, right? You you have Dreiser and uh, the World's Fair as well, and Meet Me in St. Louis, and so,
2: and so like all this stuff wrapped up in this particular chapter. I was trying to capture um, something, I guess, about the erotic character of these imperial claims alongside their economic aspect. And so what really struck me about the period, you know, the 1890s um, through the beginning of the 20th century in St. Louis was the degree to which um, both the reputation of the city and the social life of the city were um, constructed around a certain kind of libidinal energy. And that comes through the, um, you know, that comes through the, vi- the history of the vice districts and the history of the, the Bordellos. And it's reflected in the history of ragtime music. So many of the ragtime pianos, pian- pianists were, um, played piano in, in Bordellos. And, you know, then I came across, I, I had actually, I'm a long time Dreiser reader and, um, Sister Carrie was a book that I had. Um, I guess I could still say I I admire a lot and and which I think, you know, I I learned a lot about the 1890s from reading Sister Carrie. Um, And so I was, I guess, like you, fascinated and horrified when I started to read Dreiser's uh, memoir, which is unstintingly honest about his fantasy life and his sex life and is very, very exoticist. Right, and, and so one of the things that Dreiser is famous for is being a, a kind of a exemplary founding figure in, in the literary school of American naturalism, which is the idea that things that happen in the world are not governed by some sort of moral order, but that human affairs are governed um, much more like the animal world. They're governed by by desires and that desire is unruly. Somewhat to my astonishment, Dreiser, in his memoir, articulates this as a insight that occurred to him in a bordello in St Louis as he watched um black women dance. Naked that, you know, in a way that they've been paid to do by one of his friends. And so there's a, there's a way then that the intellectual history of, of the United States seemed to me to, to be entwined with this history of St. Louis at that moment, which was more or less a city where the right kind of man, which is to say a white man with the right kind of money could, could buy whatever they wanted. At the same time, there is, on the top side, there's an effort to take that kind of, of underbelly civilization and represent it to the world as um, moral, technological, and economic progress that is the World's Fair in 1904. Mm. And the World's Fair in 1904 is a, you know, it's, it's any number of things, but it's an exhibit of the fantastic forms of, of technology that the late 19th century had created for the 20th. And of many of the cutting edge ideas, many of the leading intellectuals in the world come to St. Louis for the World's Fair And it's also a sort of a civilizational tableau of the um, transformability and educability up to a point of the world's peoples, if governed properly, i.e. if governed by um, white military, people and capitalism from the United States on the model of the Indian school, on the model that that Schertz had favored, on the model of um, kill the Indian, save the man
3: came home to the flat. He hung up his coat and his hat. He gazed all around, but no wifey he found. So he said, where can Flossie be at? And note on the table, he spied. He read it just once and he cried. It ran, Louis, dear, it's too slow for me here, so I think I will go for a ride. Meet me in St. Louis, Louis, meet me at the fair.
0: It's time for a break. This is Meet Me in St. Louis, Louis, a popular song from 1904. Which celebrated the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, also known as the St. Louis World's Fair. Walter Johnson writes that this theme song of the fair was about a white woman gone sporting in St. Louis, about the allure of interracial desire and the dark pleasures that might draw in a young white woman beguiled by the bright fair lights. Stay with us for more on The Broken Heart of America when Interchange returns on WFHB.
3: He started to run in the wet. The son of a gun's running yet That crazy old gate, he made straight for the gate And I hollered, hey Lou, don't forget Meet me in St. Louis, Louis, Meet me at the fair Take my tip and don't stop running Until you are there You're a wonder that's no light key you don't fall down in dice so meet me in St. Louis, Louis, meet me at the fence.
0: Welcome back to Interchange. Again, that was Meet Me in St. Louis, Louis, the unofficial theme song of the 1904 World's Fair. We'll now backtrack in order to delve a little further into the psychology of the white sporting man at the turn of the 20th century via the lens of great American novelist Theodore Dreiser. Who was a newspaper reporter, or as Johnson says, a gossip columnist, in St. Louis from
3: 1892 to 1894? What the beautiful shore is a joke. Meet me in St. Louis, Louis, meet me at the fair. Don't tell me the lights are shining any place but there. I'll be waiting at the station for the whole darn congregation. So meet me in Saint Louis, Louis, me.
0: Let me back up real quick, Walter. Um, just, just because, just because I didn't want to leave Dreiser, um, so quickly only, only because, and there are a couple of things in there that are, that are fascinating. One, his concern that he was never a good lover is an interesting thing because I'm, it's again, one of those man-woman issues, perhaps, or the idea that someone's paying for pleasure and then seeming, you know, to have pleasure as well, to get, to get pleasure from you. Uh, this is a revelation to Dreiser that it's possible that he, he wasn't really giving anyone pleasure. The place here of the psychology of, man, of men and sexuality is like right next door to the, as you, I think, point this out, the eroticism of, of
2: violence. There's a late 19th century reckoning with the idea of women's sexual agency. And so I try to frame that partly through Kate Chopin, who lived in St. Louis in these years and and who's often seen as as writing, you know, as a novelistic exemplar of of writing a book called The Awakening, which is about a white woman's um, sexual awakening, her dawning understanding of her own um, desire and and sexual agency. And I, I try to suggest then that Dreiser, um, because of his experience with paid sex and um, the way that the, the vice economy in St. Louis presented all kinds of images of women simulating orgasm, was disoriented and began to, you know, wonder whether or not he was up to the task, so to speak. And then I try in that chapter to lay that side by side with a set of images of white men's fear of competition with um, darker men, particularly with Filipino scouts who had been brought to the fair to exhibit the possibilities of imperial civilization. And so there were a set of conflicts at the fair between white men and some white military men, white military men in uniform with the Filipino scouts when white women were, um, you know, maybe flirting with being being asked out by promenading with dating um, Filipino men. And so the, the, it sets off a kind of a sex panic in St. Louis, which I think reflects a broader uh, set of anxieties about uh, white women's sexual agency and um, white men's sexual inadequacy. That runs through the the history of the World's Fair alongside the emphasis on um, sort of civilizational martial masculinity. There's an interesting confluence
0: there, too, with Dreiser and lynching. Uh, and the eroticization of that particular violence also. From Theodore Dreiser's memoir, Newspaper Days, first published as a book about myself in 1923, with this being one of the many sections redacted from that edition, these events occurred in 1894. She was, plainly, the be-all and the end-all of my existence. Now I must work for her, wait for her, succeed for her. St. Louis, quite like Chicago, now took on a glamour which it had never previously possessed. Only, it was still not Chicago, but a darker, grosser, more material thing. Still, it was beautiful now. Love, as it is in most places, and despite its consuming blaze, was a slow process. I was to be permitted to take her to church, to concerts, the theater, a restaurant occasionally, but nothing more. I poured forth my amaze and delight on reams of thin paper, for which I searched in order to make the letters seem less bulky. I wonder now where they are, but those letters, perhaps the most interesting effect of this sudden fierce passion, was the heightened color it lent to everything, my work, my ambitions, my dreams. Never before had I realized quite so clearly, I think, the charm of life as life— its wondrous singing intense appeal. I remember witnessing a hanging, standing beside the murderer when the trap was sprung and seeing him die. But when I returned to the office, there was a letter there from her, and the world was once more perfect. A Negro in an outlying county assaulted the girl, and I arrived in time to see him lynched. But walking in the woods afterward, away from the swinging body, I thought of her, and life contained not a single ill. Love, all its possibilities, paraded before my eyes a gorgeous, fantastic, and sensual procession. Love, love, the beauty of a woman's body, the brooding tenderness of it, the healing force against the blows of ordinary life.
2: Yeah, it's it's a really disorienting moment in Dreiser's memoir, which is called Newspaper Days, where he takes the train out to a a place called Valley Park, which is in present day St. Louis County. There's a a sort of a rumor of lynching and, and this man, John Butner, has been accused of a rape and has been taken into custody by... The sheriff and then is um, kidnapped out of custody by a mob and, and hung from a bridge. And Dreiser writes about watching the hanging and then immediately shifts, you know, the next paragraph, literally the next paragraph is about his sexual longing for, at that point, the woman he's involved in it's a kind of a surprising to a reader turn in this story. And, you know, so I try, as I tried to make sense of that juxtaposition, you know, it, it seemed to me that there was an association between the lynching of this black man, the, the imagined animal sexuality of this murdered man and Dreiser's own um, moment of, of feeling this kind of surplus of erotic energy.
0: Yeah. Again, it's, a, it's an intense part of this book that you discovered these psychological clashes as well as anything else.
2: Um... I'll try to ascribe motives to Dreiser in oh, a way, but, but he's so um, alarmingly open. Right. about these things. I mean, in a way you could argue that he's a fearless writer for putting these things down. I think in a way he's probably more of an entitled writer. He's he's just, you know, he's, he's oblivious to the extraordinary kind of um, entitlement and and violence that his writing represents. But it does for me capture, and I, I think I try to capture in that particular chapter more than i'm able to do anywhere else in the book this sort of erotic libidinal energy around the the history of of empire around the history of anti-blackness that runs through the whole history in ways that i think i i haven't um, perhaps captured as well in some of the other chapters
0: This is Interchange on WFHB. Walter Johnson is our guest for part two of our conversation about his book, The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States. We've been discussing the history of anti-blackness through the white vice ethnography of novelist Theodore Dreiser. Now we turn to the 1904 World's Fair, where we'll find the largest human zoo in world history. You had started to talk about the World's Fair, uh, which uh, included a human zoo, and uh, I think at, at some point, you know, the idea that this is a model for global racial governance, um, you know, the education of the uncivilized... I just have trouble imagining it, but at the same time, you point to you know multiple people that are there that, as you said already, were uh, very well known scientists and 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 well known people in other areas as well. T. S. Eliot, as you say, I think was walking the grounds or had used forty nine of his fifty
2: passes to go to the fair. Also, as far as the fair goes, I mean Max Weber was there, Henry James, Mark Twain, Eliot was there as a as a you know a young man, a child, um, Kate Chopin walked the fairgrounds on and on it was the, you know it was one of the greatest um, intellectual and cultural events of the beginning of the twentieth century, and at its center um, or not i mean not geographically at the center, but perhaps at its intellectual center was uh, a human zoo that contained ten thousand living exhibits. Um, many of them from the Philippines as a sort of a, a justification of the Philippine War and an emblem of how the ongoing um, United States uh, occupation of the Philippines was producing civilization were sort of set up as a tableau representing stages of civilization. All the way from the uh, Igorot they are to represent the most sort of primitive forms of being to the Philippine scouts who were there to represent the possibility of the civilization of the darker nations under the American Imperium. You know, at at the same time, I I try to argue that the fair is making the case to um, poor and working white people St. Louis, the people who had, you know, you could argue, participated in the general strike of 1877 and, and in many cases participated in strikes, including some very violent strikes during the years that the infrastructure of the fair itself was being built. Um, there's a case being made to them, which is, come join us, right? Just if, if you will accept the terms of um, capitalist imperial rule, you too can be part of the ruling class of the world. Mm. And, and I think that, that in, in many ways, that's the pitch of, um, white supremacy and empire to poor white people is uh, you are a, um, a temporarily. Delayed member of the ruling class. <laughs> but,
0: yeah, something my friend has always said. There's only one way to be in the world, in this world anyway. It's white, and and you're on a level of whiteness. And then many white people are just failed white people. <laughs> they haven't quite been white, white enough yet.
2: Right. And so, so this is the you know the the flip side of that pitch is well, come join us at the fair and and learn about how you can become. One of the, the leaders of society the interesting part about that too,
0: is that there's no, there 's no poor white person exhibit at the fair right so it's it 's like you too could be in an exhibit if you 're not careful. It's time for another break. This is E. St. Louis Toodaloo by Duke Ellington and his Kentucky Club Orchestra, recorded in 1927. When we return, we focus on an example of the racial capitalism that pits black and white workers against each other in order to obscure the realities of capitalist oppression. Stay with us for more with historian Walter Johnson when Interchange returns. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Patterns of Segregation and Alibis for Abandonment with author and historian Walter Johnson about his book on St. Louis and the violent history of the U.S. In this segment, we turn to the East St. Louis riot of 1917. Marked by white-led violence throughout the city, the multi-day massacre has been described as the worst case of labor-related violence in 20th century American history and among its worst racial massacres. It's estimated as many as 250 black residents were killed by white rioters and another 6,000 were left homeless. The Shape of Fear is an important chapter because it details what is more often the case, right, is white people rioting and uh, murdering and uh, beating uh, black people in America. So when we talk about riots in America, the mainstream idea of a riot is that black people have gotten loose in the streets. But generally, for the most part, riots are white riots against black people. And here's a good example of it in 1917 East St. Louis, right?
2: Yeah, I think that... that, um... East St. Louis was the first of a series of race massacres in the United States. I mean, most notably in Chicago in 1919 and then in Tulsa in 1922. Right. And what happened in East St. Louis, I think, is important in, in any number of ways. I try to think about it as... Um, Emblematic and a certain of a certain moment in the history of racial capitalism, which is the moment of black migration. So black people continuing the what Du Bois called the general strike that had begun in during the Civil War and and refusing to work, refusing to live under the conditions that were available in the United States South, and leaving and coming up the Illinois Central Railroad to St. Louis, to East St. Louis, and and to Chicago, seeking Freedom, seeking what had been promised by the Civil War, and in the right to vote and um, and to be gainfully employed, that presents for white working people in St. Louis um, that they, since they understand themselves as entitled to the jobs in in the plants by their whiteness, they understand East St. Louis as a white man's town. That's what they call it. They don't believe that they should have to. Um, compete for, or take any kind of cognizance of African-Americans who are, are looking for jobs. And so as a consequence for that, they, they don't try to organize them into the unions. The unions in, in East St. Louis remain all white. And as production in the First World War ramps up and workers in St. Louis, East St. Louis, white workers in East St. Louis try to use the unions to... Um, improve their conditions because they have never been more critical. There's an emphasis in wartime on, on production and that gives labor a new sort of leverage. They go on strike um, at the aluminum ore plant, which is the plant where most of the uh, bauxite in the United States is turned into aluminum. It's an enormously important um, military and economic asset. And, Um, were in um, many cases replaced by black workers who the the unions had failed to organize. And that along with a fear of um, black voters as um, a fear that is, I think, resonant with our current political predicament, the notion that black voters are somehow illegitimate voters Leads up to a genocidal removalist massacre in East St. Louis that begins with attacks on black working men in downtown, but really spreads quite quickly into the black neighborhoods and becomes an attack on black households and on black women and children and leads to the driving out of... Three to five thousand Black residents of East St. Louis who flee across what was then called the pedestrian bridge, it no longer exists, into St. Louis and never return. And so, as I try to to pull forward the city, the the story about anti-blackness and removal, East St. Louis, and and thinking about the East St. Louis uh, massacre as a as a driving out, as an effort to foreclose the possibility. Of black families and black futurity in East St. Louis, it, it provides another, you know, another. Um, I mean, I hate to say milestone. It provides another data point along that history, and one that, again, it has a different kind of of economic shape than some of the other moments, than any of the other moments. This is, you know, very much focused on the question of a dual labor market and and industrial production, although still characterized by the imperially derived notion of the white man's country.
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Patterns of Segregation and Alibis of Abandonment. This is part two of our conversation with Walter Johnson about his book, The Broken Heart of America. St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States. We've been talking about the murderous white riot of 1917 in East St. Louis and the racial capitalism that pitted black replacement workers against striking white union members. Hmm, But you also make a special note here of the kinds of owners... In this uh, area as well, or the ways in which these are absentee corporate owners that uh, that are in charge of these plants.
2: Absolutely, I mean, East Saint Louis was you know a a municipality, and this is something that I try to I'm trying to to begin to create a resonance for how I understand the 21st century economy in Saint Louis and in the United States more generally. East St. Louis was a place where municipal governance was completely subordinated to the notion of capitalist accumulation. and um, because many you know virtually all of the owners of the plants lived elsewhere, they couldn't care less what east St. Louis was like. and in fact, the reason that they had located in East St. Louis is because of an absolute uh, an absence. Of regulation, of the regulation of um, protections for labor, but particularly of any kind of environmental regulation around nuisance. And so so East St. Louis was a, a place that you could smell. I mean, you could smell the stockyards for miles and miles away. You could smell the, the sulfur of production. And so it was a, a place that was basically set up with a sort of set of feed tubes for um, capitalist interests in in New York in particular, but also in in Chicago. And I think that it is great and important that you mention that because it is important to remember to frame the demonic actions of the mob in East St. Louis uh, in terms of these larger structuring factors and to trace the pathways of responsibility backwards along the pathways of accumulation.
0: Yeah, we forget that we, we create these spaces. That, you know, the, these things don't just happen because of these racial animosities. You know, they're, they're built up in a certain way. They're, and even almost in a, maybe in, um, in indifference. As much as anything else. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the vacuum is filled by certain certain other feelings. But, um, you know, that's the, that's the thing that's essential throughout, too, I think, is that, you know, allowing these sort of capital uh, corporatist, I guess, building spaces, the ways in which these things frame our lives, you know, this is how you live is to get a job and go to work in one of these places. These are the places that structure your governance. This corporatist idea, I suppose, structures how we are materially living together. And then it does create these circumstances, I think. And and we do forget that we're framed these ways.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to make throughout the book an argument about what I think of as structural racism, about the deep historical structures of the way that um, material, economic, social, environmental life in St. Louis is organized, and about the way that that organization is at various moments in time, and East St. Louis would be a perfect example of this, um violently enforced but also about the ways in which um there's a there's a, over time a certain kind of forgetting and that different um historical historically produced patterns of life become a kind of a common sense for generations down the road and so that patterns of of segregation say that were actually intentionally created through restrictive covenants or through segregation ordinances or through redlining um, become common sense in St. Louis to the, to the point that today, if you talk about the Del Mar divide in St. Louis, everybody knows what you're talking about. They know that you're talking about Del Mar Avenue and that everything to the north of Del Mar Avenue is assumed to be black and everything to the south is assumed to be white. The way that, that officially, um, sponsored and sanctioned segregation then leads to, you know, it, it makes it possible that there's a set of alibis for abandonment, right? right? And so, so the, the municipal abandonment of of the north side can be justified through through various sorts of of euphemisms and the racism that structures the history of the city and and the history of daily life can be disavowed. And so the city can begin to can can start to represent and you know I think this is important for understanding our moment. Social economic material life can be thoroughly racialized without anybody ever going around today and saying oh well i'm going to going to intentionally discriminate against african americans we don't need to di- intentionally discriminate against african americans if none of them can get to the place where your job site is because there's no public transportation in the city right or if none of them can qualify for, for your job offering because their their schools are founded with tax revenue, are funded by tax revenue that's keyed to real estate values and the real estate values are low, partially intentionally because that's where African Americans live. There, there's a sort of a, you know a self-perpetuating character to these things that, that it's a machine that that can run at this point without, any overt white supremacy. Now, that's not to say that there is not overt white supremacy in the United States or Missouri or St. Louis. There's plenty of it. But the history is so structured into to everyday life that it's going to take more than a kind of a reformist effort to eliminate what overt white supremacy from the halls of government to, to fix it. It's time for our final break. This is
0: one-time East St. Louis Lincoln High Marching Band member, Miles Davis, with thinking One Thing and doing Another. When we return, we'll discuss the city planner whose racist obsession with black removal and enclosure ties us back to the origins of the U.S. and its genocidal methods against the indigenous people of this land, patterns that continue to be repeated to this day. Stay with us on Interchange. In our final segment with Walter Johnson about his book, The Broken Heart of America, we'll center on so-called urban renewal and Harlan Bartholomew, perhaps the most influential city planner in U.S. history. Walter Johnson writes that Bartholomew's malign genius was to be able to translate the terms of existing institutional racism, the segregation ordinance, and the restrictive covenant into the notionally colorblind terms of liberal white supremacy, property values, and the public good. of the important chapters, Black black Removal, White Approval, and one of the uh, important, uh, I guess, architects of this uh, is Harlan Bartholomew. And I did want you to say a few words about uh, Bartholomew, if you can, simply because uh, as I was reading it, I thought to myself, um, why did we need uh, Adolf Eichmann uh, as some sort of idea of the banality of evil? We've got lots of, lots of examples here where, as you say, just through using certain terminologies, uh, just through a kind of bureaucratic ability to do these kinds of things through zoning laws, you get evil. So Harlem Bartholomew, I think someone even calls him some sort of administrative evil or something like that. So uh, can you give us a little bit about what Harlem Bartholomew has done for St. Louis?
2: Yeah, so, so Bartholomew is um, one of the most important urban planners of the 20th century in the United States. You know, there's an enormous list of 120, 150 cities um, for which he did the master um, urban renewal plans um, beginning uh, in the 20s and 30s. And, and then his his um, company, Harlem Bartholomew and Associates, working through the 60s and 70s, including, I discovered very recently, Uh, My own hometown, Columbia, Missouri, where he was responsible for the destruction of um, what was called Sharps End, which was the the black neighborhood and near the downtown in Columbia. Bartholomew was somebody who was obsessed with single family dwellings and obsessed with automobiles. And so he built the city of St. Louis around The notion of of automobile arterial connections to the suburbs, and um, drove those uh, those arterial connections right through some of the city's central black neighborhoods, Um, and I think that that it's a perfect example of what I was talking about about the sort of er how the erasure of history can produce. a a racism that doesn't need to speak its own name. If you imagine the way a segregated real estate market works is it produces value on both sides of the color line. It produces value for white homeowners and renters who are willing to, to pay more to rent or able to sell for more on the guarantee that the neighborhood will remain white. That's what a restrictive covenant does. But on the other side of the line is where the real money is to be made, it turns out, which is that if an increasing number of African-Americans, so people who are migrating from the South, people who are migrating from Mississippi, are enclosed in a fixed neighborhood, there are, you can, there are more and more people from whom you can extract rent. And because they can't move, right, because they can't, they can't just pick up and move to a different part of the city, there's, there's not a real premium on um, maintaining the conditions in those neighborhoods. So landlords don't have to keep up the property. So Bartholomew starts in the 1930s, um, with taking workers from the Work Progress Administration and having them go around St. Louis and figure out which neighborhoods are producing revenue that is concomitant to the cost of policing them and maintaining the streets and which, rev- which neighborhoods are not. Well, if all the properties are run down in a certain kind of neighborhood, another benefit of that to landlords really is that their assessments are low and so they pay low taxes. And so Bartholomew starts to talk about, well, why don't we get rid of these neighborhoods, right? Why don't we get rid of them and replace them with neighborhoods that will produce more revenue? And so revenue production in this way becomes a proxy proxy for removal. And he goes around and and surveys, um, you know, eventually this produces a a comprehensive plan for the city, which I think is published in 1947, which recommends uh, the the destruction of something like twenty percent of the I I can't off the top of my head I can't remember exactly what the statistics are, but it's it's the the total destruction of some enormous part of the city and the um, near complete destruction or rehabilitation of. A um, much larger part of the city, and if you if you look at a map, that the 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 footprint of what Bartholomew is proposing maps um, fairly perfectly, although not completely, onto Black St. Louis, and this plan then eventually, I think, sets the the tone for. Um, a, you know, how it is that economic development, redevelopment, so-called urban renewal in St. Louis, and, and I think the United States will be pursued, which is by um, tearing down Black neighborhoods, removing Black people, and then making that land available for investment. And so I argue there that there's the emergence of a kind of a new form of dispossession and racial capitalism focused on on real estate, on on the expropriation of the places where African Americans are living, um, including most notably in St. Louis, a neighborhood called Mill Creek Valley, which one of one of the hearts of St. Louis is a neighborhood of over 400 acres containing, I think, 8,000 buildings where 20,000 people lived that that was destroyed in. Um, 1959 torn down in the in the interest of of economic redevelopment, urban renewal, and basically remains with some notable exceptions. Um, the campus, you know, part of the campus of Saint Louis University, um, it remains torn down today. It's it's still a barren spot in in Saint Louis.
0: This is Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm, and this is part two of our conversation with Walter Johnson about his book, The Broken Heart of America. We've been talking about how the euphemism urban renewal covers the bureaucratic evil of removal and enclosure at the heart of city planning in the first half of the 20th century. Just torn down and nothing was developed.
2: Nothing. nothing yeah, there, put- were, there were lots of plans and promises, um, but all those plans and promises came to naught. What What did happen was that this um, one of this historic hearts of Black St. Louis, a place where the Black baseball team, the St. Louis Stars, had played, a place where Vashon High School had been, you know, churches, everything, you know, YMCA uh black banks, black doctors, all this was was torn down and, and the people dispersed. And there was some understanding that they would all land in the in the Pruitt Igo housing project, which was being built in the same years that the destruction of Mill Creek Valley was being um, considered, but there was never really an, an adequate plan to make sure that people went even there.
0: Well so there was kind of an idea that we could tear this down and build a kind of uh, how, like a project, which is kind of like a, a, another kind of um, prison space in some sense. House these people here, uh, build commercial developments here, so white people could spend money here. Or
2: uh, yeah, we can we can take their land. There, there's an enormous number of promised jobs in the in the building trades, which are um, not coincidentally um, almost entirely white in St. Louis and elsewhere. And so there's a promise of, of jobs and of, of the possibility of higher-end real estate development in Mill Creek Valley. And the price to be paid is through the removal and then enclosure of, of this large portion of the African-American population right. in, in Pruitt-Igo, which then becomes a, a byword for... Um, failed federal policy, but basically the federal policy at this time is suburbanization for whites and public housing for for African Americans, which is, is certainly characteristic of of the ways that the federal government is allocating resources in in St. Louis,
0: and uh, at this time too, isn't this where they uh, tear down really what's along the the landing area, La Landing? Wasn't it? Uh,
2: yeah, in, that was a little yeah. bit earlier. So that oh, okay. was one of the. I think um, that is a project that began um, was first broached in in 1930, and then I think the the final destruction of the riverfront was in 1939. And again, there wasn't really. A, a good plan for what to do.
0: It was a promise of getting some federal money there, right? Like the idea was like, you know, a proposed that there would be a national monument and not necessarily be able to deliver it.
2: Right. And they, but they went through all kind. I mean, the, 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 the number of um, possible projects that are broached for the riverfront is truly hilarious. And they, they talk about it as being a a bomb shelter, you know, make the whole thing into a bomb shelter for the entire city of St. Louis, or to, you know, make it into an airport, um, to make it into a gigantic parking lot. So there's really, again, there's really no plan in place. The dominant plan is, um, let's tear down this neighborhood, which is a kind of a beat down neighborhood, warehouse neighborhood, where, there are, you know, some number of um, poor black and white people living.
0: I feel like at some point there's, you know, there's the idea of, of tearing, tearing down like cultural spaces, too, in the sense that there, you know, people have been living here. Their lives are here. They pass on their, their music, their, their love, their arts, whatever it is. In history, I suppose, there are just these massive building projects or destruction projects, right? So it's literally, as you say, it's, it's erasure, And enclosure.
2: And I think that is, I mean, again, I think it's a pattern that is particularly pronounced in the Midwest. Um, So there's a a terrific historian of of St. Louis on whom I rely a lot um, named Clarence Lang who suggests that in response to the civil rights movement in the South, there was what's called massive resistance, which is you know, pulling people, pulling their kids out of school, out of the public schools and putting them in private schools and um, the slow walking of, of voter rights and the resistance to voter rights. And that in, in the Midwest, he says there was massive redevelopment. Hmm. Right, that was the, the analogous response, the the related but different response was just was tearing down these neighborhoods and reconstructing the city and dispersing the, the black populations.
0: That's our show. We'll close with St. Louis Blues, composed by W.C. Handy in 1914 and performed here by Louis Armstrong for a 1954 release. According to the Jazz Discography, there have been over 1,800 jazz or jazz-related versions dating from 1915 to 2010. W.C. Handy spent a year in St. Louis and remembered the city for the brutality of the police who would use yard-long nightsticks to drive vagrants off empty lots at night. If you missed it last week, you can find part one of this interview, St. Louis, Gateway to Genocide, online at wfhb.org. Thanks to Walter Johnson for such an engrossing narrative revealing the terror of the White Imperial Project as it has expressed itself in St. Louis, Missouri, and was repeated time and again across the country and the world. Johnson's must-read book is The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States, published by Basic Books. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening.